So it all sort of swirled around this, like the way in which the, the binary sex system is imposed. It's, you know, Eurocentric white supremacist, colonial and heteropatriarchal foundations. And this is the lens that I bring to a discussion of transgender inclusion in sport. Hello, I'm J.R. Woodward, and that was Travers, my most recent guest on Our Social Landscape. Professor Travers teaches sociology at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, British Columbia. According to no less of an expert than Jay Coakley, my last podcast guest, Travers is an international leader and expert on transgender issues, especially related to sport and young people and their perception of self and the world around them. Towards the end of my recent interview with Professor Coakley, he stated that trans issues in sport will become increasingly salient. And indeed, here in Florida, as well as many other states, our governor recently signed legislation that forbids trans girls from competing in girls' and women's sports in public schools. I've had an interest in this topic for quite some time, so I started digging into it more, and Professor Travers' name showed up over and over in the literature. In addition, the esteemed sociologist Michael Messner suggested to me there'd be no one better to talk to about trans athletes than Travers. So I reached out, and they graciously agreed to chat. Originally from Toronto, Travers completed their PhD at the University of Oregon before heading back to Canada and Simon Fraser. Their most recent book is The Trans Generation, How Trans Kids and Their Parents Are Creating a Gender Revolution, published in 2018 and their 2017 edited text, Transgender Athletes in Competitive Sports, is arguably the most definitive and authoritative work on the topic. From their home in Vancouver and my home here in Jacksonville Beach, we enjoyed an hour discussing sports, sex and gender, race, social class, baseball, and of course, sociology. Hello, Professor Travers. Hey, JR. Thank you kindly for being here. No problem. So for, in terms of kind of um, a starting point, can you tell me just a little about your background? Like what made you decide to study this topic? How did you get interested in it? I was, in addition to, well, actually, you know what? I wasn't doing sport at all, but I did, I used sport in my intro sociology class starting in 1997. And I was talking about sex segregation then and racial segregation because I thought it was such a like great way of bringing students into tough conversations. Um, but it was, I was the chair of my lesbian softball league in Vancouver. And there were people calling me about trans men saying, uh, there's a guy that, you know, there's a person on our team who's going to transition and they want to know if they can still play. And my first sort of knee jerk reaction was, you know, the Mabel league is a, a women's league. It's a lesbian league. Uh, so if you identify as a woman, you can play. And in my mind, it was totally self-identification. You tell me you're a woman, you're in. Right. And I stuck with that for about a year or so. But then I started thinking about it. I mean, I started doing some research on it. The reason that I started doing research was was because I expected as chair of my lesbian softball league, someone was going to bring up the women born women thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wanted to be ready. So I wanted to be able to play an educational role. So I started doing my research on lesbian softball leagues, which is what resulted in my 2006 publication, which was my first sport-related article. 
Um, and it started me down this path. And, wow. and then my subsequent research that I published with a grad student in 2010 was about, okay, what's the climate like now? We've got this policy. What's the climate like? How, how are things changing? So that's how I first started getting into it. But I also really um, got interested in sex segregation of sport. Sex segregated sport reinforces gender inequality and, you know, generates a, a subtext of citizenship that, you know, is patriarchal. But anyway, I started getting really interested in transgender kids, too. Mm-hmm. And one of the major barriers or one of the major difficulties for trans kids, in addition to, you know, just basically being accepted is sport participation. So it all sort of swirled around this, you know, like the way in which the, the binary sex system is imposed. It's, you know, Eurocentric white supremacist, colonial and heteropatriarchal foundations, how it re you know, how it sort of reinscribes these power relations. And this is the lens that I bring to, uh, a discussion of transgender inclusion in sport. So I, I gave you a really long answer. No, it's a great answer. I love it. Yeah. Uh, and it, you probably already kind of touched on this, but I was going to ask you, um, you know, what do you think, what are the insights gained by using sociology, like using a sociological perspective as opposed to coming at it from a different field? Like what is it about sociology that makes this such a fruitful attempt? For me, sociology allows me to talk about the things that I want to talk about in the way that I want to talk about them. And I mean, C. Wright Mill's sociological imagination is so powerful. Like, what is the relationship between social structure or history and individual experience, biography, agency? How do we understand transgender inclusion in sport, you know, in a historically situated way? You know, there are really important things that get lost if we don't ground things in in social history the fact that endocrinology for example the you know the study of the body's hormone systems developed like in a colonial and white supremacist context so the very tanner scale of normal puberty development is based on uh you know eurocentric norms around uh gender dimorphism Mm -hmm. like you can't separate it yeah, yeah. And it and it also, you know, emerged in a time when um white supremacist and colonial narratives of civilization were emphasizing binary sex difference right. and, you know, heteropatriarchal gender gender inequality. So, I mean, one of the reasons that Europeans justified the subjugation and genocide of indigenous populations was because they were fucking gender egalitarian. Yeah, right. 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 Evidence, evidence of primitiveness. Right, exactly. Yeah, primitive. <laughs> it's so horrifying. Yeah. And you have yeah. the violent imposition of sex and gender systems, mm-hmm. you know, that were heteropatriarchal, etc. It's just unbelievable, which has led to the the high rate of murdered and missing indigenous girls and women. Oh, yeah. Like, in the U.S. and Canada. Big, yes, big everywhere. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Australia, New Zealand, you see the same pattern. Yeah. Same pattern. And that social construction issue, I'm going to come back to the sex part in a minute, but um, that's a term we throw around a lot. But for people that don't know a lot of sociology, what does it mean in your mind to say that sports and gender are both, sex, uh, both socially constructed? Um, 
to say something is socially constructed doesn't mean that it's just made up and we can snap our fingers and change it. But it's typically used to counter arguments that fundamental biological differences explain patterns of social inequality. You know, and instead we, we point out that, you know, specific social formations, you know, emerge in specific contexts. And I think that's one of the challenges of, you know, good scholarship is to pay attention to the particular circumstances under which different patterns of behavior emerged, you know, and to, and to understand their ongoing significance. I mean, because in yeah, sociology, yeah. we study yeah. aggregates, meaning yeah. we study groups, you know, we, we study social structures, which, you know, I think, you know, a sociology textbook would define as relatively stable patterns of behavior. Mm-hmm. So you see these relatively stable patterns of behavior, like how did they emerge? Whose interests did they promote? You know, who did they harm? What were some of the unexpected things? You know, because sometimes you have these relatively stable patterns of behavior that were developed to, you know, by a certain group to promote their own interests. It doesn't necessarily happen to work that way. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. All right, thank you. I had one, um, one more before uh, we get to specific issues with uh, trans inclusion. But in your book, Transgender Athletes and Competitive Sports, there's a quote. Uh, in segregating athletes into two neat yet wholly incomplete categories, sport remains one of the most important institutions in reproducing the sex gender binary. Can you just explain that briefly? Yeah, absolutely. Because sport is such a powerful institution for normalizing and celebrating male supremacy and, you know, heteropatriarchal norms. When in fact, human variation in terms of what we consider to be sex characteristics, and there are many, like there are many different dimensions of, of what we would, you know, refer to as sex characteristics. Um, there are more than two sexes. Like the, the, the two sex system is an ideological construction and you have extensive work, you know, in science studies, you know, Anne Fausto Sterling, Rebecca Jordan Young, Christina Carcasis, Elizabeth Gross. I, I'm sure that I'm overlooking some really key sure. scholars sure. Um, in the, Donna Haraway, et cetera, who, you know, show that science isn't Ruth Hubbard. Science just isn't able to establish two sexes. And you have this long history of sex testing for women athletes only um, at the Mm -hmm. highest levels of sport, which at the time, any of these sex testing methods were used. The leading scholars in the field of sex development didn't support them as good science okay Interesting. ever yeah. like always and i think you know this is absolutely brilliant there's a, a piece of uh, there's a dissertation that i had the uh, pleasure of reading recently by uh, cassandra wells where she chronicles the history of sex testing in terms of the scientific communities around it and one of the things that she establishes with absolute certainty is that the leaders in the field of sex development did not support sex testing methodologies like they 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 said this is bad science this isn't this isn't good so but sport i think is one of the the you know i would say it is the most powerful institution for uh reinforcing and promoting taken for granted beliefs about across the board male athletic superiority and the belief that there are only two sexes Mm -hmm. how about uh terminology a good working definition of trans for you? Do you have something you want to, that you kind of, is the easiest way for you to kind of say, 
I, I want to compare it to, uh, and, and again, in transgender athletes, competitive sports, Susan Stryker's definition. And if, if I would like to read this out, uh, Transgender does not refer to one particular identity or way being embodied, but rather as an umbrella term for a wider variety of bodily effects that disrupt or denaturalized heteronormatively constructed linkages between an individual's anatomy at birth, a non-consensually assigned gender category, physical identifications with the sex body images and or gendered subject positions, and the performance of specifically gendered social, sexual, or kinship functions. So that's a mouthful. Um, like when I, when I'm, uh, defining transgender in a, you know, a less academic context, um, my definition is anyone who differs from sex assigned at birth. Okay. That's it. You know, and again, you know, I would say it's an umbrella term to quote Susan Stryker, but anyone who does not identify with the sex they were assigned at birth. Okay. Um, and so people in that category often are uh, not allowed to participate in sport or not allowed to participate in sport in the category that they choose. Um, one, the International Olympic Committee, one of their bylaws is anti-discrimination, right? This quote, also, the practice of sport is a human right. Every individual must have the possibility of practicing sport without discrimination of any kind. Uh, we know sport is socially and culturally significant, and we know certain athletes are being excluded uh, and excluded from maybe the divisions that they would choose to compete in. Plus, sports are fun, right, uh, for many people at least. So what are the negative impacts of keeping trans folks from participating in sports? Like, what are they missing out on? How is this hurting? And then can you just maybe say right now, as we stand, where where are we now Um in terms of inclusion, I know it's different by country, by state, but do you have kind of a general, you know, statement about how uh, the inclusion process is at the moment? Um, let me start with the fact that the majority of trans kids are invisible because they know that, um, <laughs> like, their life would be just the worst if they came out. So they don't. And they may not even have the language to explain what is happening. But the worst thing that happens right away is that kids are separated into boy and girl categories and sport is one of the the main ways that that happens. So there are a lot of trans kids who um, you don't know they're there, who are being forced to pick a boy or girl category, some for whom they're not boys and yet there's no way that they're going to be able to participate with the girls because they don't want to even deal with trying to come out. Um, but also there are kids who don't identify with either side of the binary and they just feel this, this discomfort and not fitting. And one of the things I think, you know, that becomes pretty clear is that those kids are less likely to participate in sport or they drop out as soon as they can. They stop taking PE. They don't participate in after school sport and the sex segregation of sport, you know, at that stage of their lives is a very negative factor. So there's that. But like, I, I think what's really important to emphasize is that, you know, at the level of the transgender athlete who we are aware of, who is being prevented from participating, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And in spite of the fact that, you know, these are very vulnerable people, those are probably the most privileged trans people because they had the ability to, mind you, there are some trans people who can't hide. Yeah like, you know, they're visible. They're just like, sure, sure. You can't, you can't hide. 
you know, and I, I've certainly experienced some of that myself, although I've been able to, you know, sort of pass in certain circumstances when I was younger. But, you know, I was always identified as gender nonconforming. Okay. But there are people <laughs> way more obvious than I was. Um, the, the trans athletes who are petitioning to participate, who are engaged in trying to change the regulations, those are the tiniest minority because most trans athletes, A, they're not elite athletes, but B, they don't even get into it in the first place. Yeah, right. So there are all these athletes mm-hmm. or all these would-be athletes who never you know, get into sports or they're turned off or that kind of thing, or just, you know, the, the, the stress of being trans in a, in a, you know, a context that is so trans negative. It's like, you know, some of the, the youth that I interviewed, for example, they said sport is the last thing on my list. I just want, I just want my teacher to use the right pronoun, like sport. Oh my God. You know, it's like, there's so many other things they're dealing with. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, that's good. Go ahead. So, why don't you ask the, the next part of the question? Okay. Uh, the second part was just kind of currently where do things stand for trans athletes? I know in the U.S. different states have started to enact um, different rules, laws, what have you about like birth certificate only or whatnot. Do you think um, is it more is sport more accessible now for trans than it was in the past? I would say that until the last year or two, there were pockets of access in the United States. Okay. You know, I think, was was it as long ago as 2014 that the state of California passed a policy that, you know, required that trans students be able to participate in their self-defined gender? I, I, I remember that, that, but I don't remember the year. But I remember I think it, because it was 2010 when uh, Griffin and Carol published on the team equal opportunity for transgender student athletes. And that was that had an impact in shaping NCAA policy in 2011. But in that policy, Griffin and Carol uh, argued that at the high school level, no medical treatment should be required. Transgender students should participate in the in the category in which they felt the most comfortable. And, you know, there wasn't a challenge about the binary construction of, uh, and there wasn't a challenge about sex segregation, but, but, you know, there were some openings and I know in the Canadian context, there are some openings. Like I've talked with parents of trans kids who like in say girls softball, trans girls are playing girls softball and they don't have to openly identify, et cetera. Okay. So, but but what has happened in the last year, the anti-trans bills, like, you know, we had the bathroom bills, but now we have this wave of anti-trans girl participation in sport. And I think it's really important to understand the way that the Christian right operates. You know, like it has a long-term goal of establishing a biblical state. We saw the uh, the anti-gay teacher bills in 1979 and 1980s around, you know, targeting homosexual teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see, you know, the abortion issue, that kind of thing. And I honestly don't think they care that much about the particular issues, but they're issues that are lightning rods that it allows them to build their base. Sure, and so... Sure. You know, the bathroom bills, the social construction of this white, innocent girl child being, uh, you know, sexually attacked by a trans woman, something that almost never happens. Like, the, the, you know, children are vulnerable to heterosexual men 
Those are the predators. That's what the FBI will tell you. It's like the most, you know, the the most high risk contacts that children have are with heterosexual men. Mm -hmm. Are none. That they probably know and trust, not strangers lurking in the bushes. Right. So like the, the ability to use media hysteria, to generate media hysteria, you know, the idea that girls with penises are going to be racing against their little girls who are fragile and need to be protected from male competition. I mean, they're lightning rods. So uh, from what I've seen, and you can correct me here if I'm wrong, but the notion of fairness seems to be the most common reason uh, people want to prevent trans athletes from participating in sport and particularly keeping trans women out of women's sports because they say it would be unfair to the women playing those sports. So we'll come back to that issue in just a second, but kind of let's break down that argument for a minute. So the first I I wrote in my notes here, faulty assumption one uh, is that sports are completely fair to begin with. This notion of fairness is, is interesting for me. So I'm not really sure all these people are truly concerned about fairness or else they'd rail against sexism and classism and racism and sports and stuff as well. And I don't know when most of them started giving a shit about fairness for women to begin with, but what do you think f- fairness in sport is like, is it equality? Judith Butler said, you know, do we treat, does that mean we treat men and women interchangeably? Like, what do you think uh, fairness in sport means? Is that a, is that, that the rights-based approach or the problems with the rights-based approach? Well, I mean, deciding what, fairness is, is an inevitably social decision. And deciding what factors uh, stand in the way of fairness is a social decision. I mean, think about all the people, let's just take the United States, for example. For me, okay, the kind of fairness I want to talk about, every child has adequate nutrition and care from prior to birth. So we're talking about free prenatal care, vitamins and nutrition. Uh, safe housing, freedom from violence, all these kinds of things. Like, let's let's talk about fairness at you know at the age uh, at the, at the the stage of child development, because think about all the kids who could be elite athletes who never have the opportunity because they like they're growing up eating out of the fucking Seven Eleven right. because that's all there is in their neighborhood and that's all that the, that there's money for. So. You know, for me, that's fairness. That's fairness. It's like if we really want a level playing field, you know, we need to do so much better. And then, you know, absolutely, we need to make sure that children have like uh, access to an opportunity. We know, for example, in the United States that black children disproportionately die by drowning. Mm-hmm. And there's this long history of uh, whites only swimming pools and that's slightly changed, but you create this, you know, like this generational trauma around being designed, you know, denied access to swimming and these kinds of things. So it's like fairness, like, so that, that's, that's one of the first conversations I want to have. If we really do want to create fair opportunity for people in sport, then we need to look much more carefully at all the conditions that are required to get people to the starting line so that they're, that what their natural 
natural difference are is are are actually really natural i mean there's no question you know i look at like my son who um like he's a freakishly good athlete (laughs) some of that's gonna happen you know it's like wow like this combination of genes wow you know that opportunity to to but like for sure i would be a better athlete like you know, I wasn't even allowed to play baseball. Like I turned 12 in 1974 when the Supreme Court ruled that the that Little League Baseball had to admit girls. But my father would never have let me play anyway because, yeah. you know, he was already pretty alarmed at my gender nonconformity. Sure, you know? sure. like, so, um, Baby steps, but, baby steps. Yeah, but what? how do we make sure that every single kid, you know, we're in Canada, but every single kid who's interested in particular sports they get exposed they find out what they like how do we make sure that every single kid has the same opportunity to develop that my son does that that's where you start yeah that's where you start okay and and people's concern about fairness at that high level of these trans women that are gonna you know beat out this runner or something it's like such a small minute percentage of the population to begin with and then if we're making policy based on that that then trickles down. So the millions of other kids around the country who are, you know, feeling these pressures one way or another to play sports or sometimes to stay out of sports, it doesn't seem like it's a, uh, a setup on a fairness idea at all. But then you like, let's then talk about natural differences, this whole notion of natural differences. And I want to, you know, sort of bookend the, the notion that natural is also, you know, deeply problematic. Like, you know, like I'm, I'm already talking about nutrition, and developmental environment as shaping natural differences because they do. Um, what, what natural differences are considered to be an advantage? And you have Castor Semenya. These are women who produce naturally greater than so-called normal levels of testosterone. Men who have higher than normal levels of testosterone, as long as they can show that they're not doping, meaning injecting testosterone, they're not prevented from competing against men. And yet these women are. And, you know, we, we have the, the, the category disorders of sex development, which basically, again, it's like, okay, there are more than two sexes. How do you, how do you cope with this? Like, how, how is it possible to say that naturally higher then normal levels of testosterone in women are unfair. Whereas in men, there's no curtailment of that. And then you have, I mean, you, you look at how some sports differentiate in terms of weight classes, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, Michael Phelps having like ridiculously large feet and hands. That's like, that's what makes him a winner, not like an unfair advantage. So this whole notion of fair advantage versus unfair advantage, these are social decisions. And these social decisions are based on um, basically white supremacist, heteropatriarchal notions of sex difference mm-hmm. that are quite flawed. Right. And you get these interesting changes at the level of policy, like the most recent change to the level of policy um, at the IOC and the IAAF is that um, in order to compete in the women's category, in particular races, just particular events, women competitors have to have a testosterone, testosterone level in their bodies below the threshold of five nanomoles. 
Okay. Yeah. 800 and up or 400 and up, I think in track, it's the 400 and up. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they basically have to take testosterone suppression if they're going to compete, which, and the thing is, there is no health-based reason for doing this. And in fact, this has negative health consequences. I mean, think about all the people who were freaking out about the AstraZeneca vaccine because of the risk of blood clots. This is, you know, mind you, like, let's mention that birth control has a far greater risk and women get pressured to be on that all the time. Well, and that is a similar uh, kind of therapy to like, that's what Castor Semenya was forced to take birth control. Which she so, had, I think she's chosen not to, right? She's appealed. She won't even race, but right, when she raced in the 2012 Olympics and came yeah. mm-hmm. silver, she was on that. Yeah. Yeah. And then when when the Court of Arbitration for Sport responded to the Duty Chan case by saying, we got to suspend those rules, Castor Semenya was able to get off it. And, you know, she said she's not going back on because it was very unhealthy for her. Sure. Um, but, okay. Um, so, so that, you're kind of already bringing into the next one. So let's just, let's just no, keep I going. Yeah. Finish, I, have, I have to finish one point because, okay, okay. so we got this ruling, this latest ruling that instead of 10 nanomoles now, it's five nanomoles and it has to, and it, but it just applies to these particular events. Mm-hmm. But for transgender women, the restriction on testosterone level has gone from 10 to five, but to compete in any event. And the difference is really significant. Like, why is it that we decide it only counts for these events? And I'm talking at the most elite levels of competition. Sure, sure. sure. Why is it for only these events Mm -hmm. and not for non-trans women and for all events for trans women? So you see the science. It's like people are just making shit up. up. (laughs) They're making it up. Social construction put differently. Making shit up. They're making shit up. Yep. Yeah. And they've made it up differently. There's a great section in the, your, your reader there about the history of how they've made that up, you know, differently. So, so what makes us think we got it right now, you know, but um, so my second faulty assumption, I called it of the, uh, of the, the logic that tries to keep trans from participating was this, what you just brought up that humans only come in two forms and that trans girls or women aren't real quote unquote real women. If they have, or have had any sex characteristics associated with male biology that they're not real women. And, and to me, I, I just personally think this might be the biggest assumption underlying this issue is this, this lack of understanding of um, the, the continuum. So I think people more walking down the street are more likely to, to agree with the idea that gender is socially constructed than they are that sex is socially constructed since we have such an essentialist uh, focus. But um you have you briefly talked about this before, and if you have anything else to say, I would like love to hear it about um, like the scientific authorities on this say that we we don't have these two just two categories. Um, uh, Katrina Carcasis is how you say her last name. I like how she put it: defining sex has always required negotiation. It's a nice way to put it. And then Adam Love uh, wrote the anatomical, chromosomal, and hormonal complexities involved in differentiating men and women men from women make sex like gender, a socially and historically constructed concept. So after that long intro, um, what do you make of this? Is that, how would you, uh, how would you? Well, I mean, the science is clear 
Rebecca Jordan Young wrote a brilliant book called Brainstorm in 2010, yeah. in which, you know what she did? She subjected the brain, like she's, you know, there's this whole field of literature about brain differences among men and women. She subjected it to the scientific method and found out that it was some of the worst science she'd ever seen. <laughs> like, I think that's really helpful. But, you know, those those voices are silenced. I do think that the fact that uh, Rebecca Jordan Young and Carcasas were published in the New York Times and got some, I, I, I do think that was helpful and that they were involved along with Bruce Kidd in the Duty Chand case as experts. I mean, that was pretty interesting. But in terms of like at the common sense level, I mean, it's a battle because this is an ideological battle about power. And, it, you know, it's, it's about patriarchy at its heart. I do think that um, it's really important to, to take a look at what this realness means you know, like if trans women aren't real women, no woman is. Like no women are. Like w- what is real? Right, right. And I don't mean to get into that, you know, that sort of brain exploding kind of conversation, you know, like is a table a table or, you know. But the thing is this whole notion about realness, about gender is so, so foundational to our culture. I mean, one of the things that got me interested in working on issues relating to trans kids was when I became a parent and my own small children, like it was so hard to keep uh, people from imposing gender norms on them. Like, you know, and I'm, I think as educated and as determined a person as there is, and I couldn't do it. And it broke my heart. And I just saw really nice people constantly telling kids, that there are, you know, like not overtly, it's not like they're saying there are only two sexes. There are boys and girls. You're a boy. You get to do this. But the thing is, it was constant and it was so much work to interrupt it, you know, and even then I failed, you know, I definitely changed minds and hearts along the way, sure. like daycare providers and other parents. Like I was in it, but like, it is just so pervasive um, you know, I think it's a little bit positive that you have stores like Target saying they're not going to do the pink and blue aisles anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's relentless. And children um, are very zealous uh, border patrollers because when people learn something new, you know, it's often, I think, really common to want to tell everybody else what to do around it. Like I, I noticed, you know, like my kid, when he was three, he, you know, like he used to wear sometimes dresses and he'd wear socks, you know, cause his sister, those were some of the clothing choices she was making. He came home and he was wearing these cute little pink socks. He was three and he was in tears. And he said, Alex says my socks are girls. I can't wear them anymore. Oh, geez. And you know what? And I'd done, so, and like his daycare was actually pretty good. Cause I had done the work with his older sister around this. So, mm-hmm. And Alex's parents were not like, uh, you know, knuckle dragging, annoying people, like they're really good people. And I don't think they were reinforcing that very much. But, you know, this three year old kid, like my son has never worn, never again, Ah, ever again. And I I remember saying Langston, they're not girls, they're pretty. Right, right. You can wear pretty clothes if you want. Right. But he never did. And don't give a shit about that one kid's opinion. (laughs) But it was over. (laughs) Right, right. That was it. Yeah, that was it. Never again. Yeah. The taken for granted assumptions and belief about, you know, the two sex system and sex difference. I think it's one of the most important lessons our society teaches kids. 
Like there are a bunch of them that it matters whether you're a boy or a girl. It matters whether you're white or some other color and it matters whether you're poor or not. Mm -hmm. But I, and I don't think we can separate them, you know, like to, to, to really employ a meaningful intersectional analysis. I don't think we assess people on one dimension first. Okay. I think that it's, it's simultaneous. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Then the third faulty assumption, and we're getting towards the end of these, uh, is that if let's, let's go back to the argument. So people are saying uh, we can't have trans women compete against real women, quote unquote. And one of the reasons is because um, men have biological advantages across the board. And so this brings us to the testosterone. So even though there's scientific recognition that the difference in performance between men and women responds to multiple biological, environmental, socioeconomic factors, testosterone seems to have become the key. Why do you think that is? Why such a strong focus these days on testosterone? Well, I think that that is a very taken for granted belief. I mean, and uh, Jordan Young and Carcassus address that in their book, Testosterone. You know, like there has not yet been a study that can isolate testosterone as, you know, the most significant effect. Like it, it's, it's very taken for granted. And, you know, people forget that testosterone is a, is a hormone that it's uh, present in all of our bodies and that there's an incredible continuum. Um, and that high testosterone among men doesn't necessarily result in uh, greater performance than men with lower testosterone levels. So, you know, it's like the, the science is faulty. It's not there. We don't have the science that establishes this. And I do think that we have, um, you know, an incredible range of factors that impact performance, you know, and we, we definitely see overlap between men and women. There are probably a number of 59 year old men who, you know, okay, let's say, you know, I've been on, you know, testosterone therapy for a while and trans non-binary. Let's say before I started that, I bet there were a number of men my own age who I could beat the shit out of. Right, Not right. that I want to. Oh, right, sure. Some of them, I could name them, definitely. <laughs> you know, and others, like, I don't stand a chance. <laughs> but, you know, the idea that men are stronger than women is so pervasive right, that right. we don't think about, you know, we, like, we don't think about the fact that it, that's not always true, that there are different factors. So I don't know. I really do think we need to rethink sport. And that's challenging because uh, partly because sport is like a major social institution for normalizing social inequality right? and for making people a shit ton of money. Right. That's for sure. So, if you we, know, uh, yeah, if we reward monetarily what we value in society, what does that tell you? Well, and also, I mean, you have like uh, the NCAA, like let's, just in the United States or Canada, you have like, but the NCAA is like a money-making machine. Right, right. And you have, you know, the major league sports that are money-making machines. You know, to think about transgender inclusion without being aware of this incredibly dynamic, historically driven, and yet, you know, responsive context is very difficult. Yeah, one more. That, that's that's a really nice segue. The last part about this this biological advantage is, I think um, you discuss. I think people forget about everything that brought that athlete to where they are without the biology. And in your book, the trans generation, you discuss a child named Sean who began yeah. gymnastics with the hope of doing yeah. the rings, but ran into gender barriers. Uh, can you discuss that? 
If you don't want to, I will, because I love that story. It's just a great example. But can you just sum that up? Well, Sean, when she was five, started gymnastics. And this is this is like a wildly active kid. Totally strong. Like her dad built her sort of in her room, uh, all these metal bars because she just she was a kid who wouldn't go to sleep till like 11 o'clock or midnight, like just had unbelievable energy, really strong. And she would be swinging around and climbing the walls. Like he basically built her a gym in her room because she needed that physical thing. So she starts gymnastics, which makes a lot of sense for a kid like this. She wanted to do the rings. She was really interested. She wasn't allowed to do the rings. And what her dad observed was that Sean was much stronger than the five-year-old boys. She was stronger than anybody. But because she was not going to be allowed to do the rings, she was going to build up different strengths. And the boys would be working on the rings. And like three, four years later, after all these reps on the rings, I mean, if you think about it, like the kinds of like dead strength stuff that is emphasized for boys in gymnastics, it's pretty freaking amazing. I mean, they hold themselves up on the pommel horse, what they do in the rings, it is. But the five-year-olds can't do it. Right. So... But he was arguing if Sean had been along, like had been able to train with the five-year-old boys, Sean would be, you know, killing it on the rings and the pommel horse and all these kinds of things. But because Sean was denied the opportunity to, to work on these apparatuses, she, like three years later, wouldn't be able to do it. So it's like the exposure. It's like the way in which the body is developed. You know, so, so you look at a gymnast now who's 18 doing the rings and you look at a female gymnast and you're like, well, of course, men are biologically stronger and more advanced. Look at the, how different they are in the rings. But when Sean first starts, she's the only one that can do a pull up. None of the boys can do a pull up. But after 10 years of working on it, of course, they're going to be better. So we kind of to focus just on the biological part kind of misses out on all those opportunities. And then, of course, the, the social class issue, gymnastics itself, is a very expensive sport. Uh, yeah. you know, he's got to do it year-round. And, you know. All right, lightning round, last lightning round. These are all kind of important, but I made them a quick lightning round because we don't want to talk for five hours because I'm sure we got other stuff to do, but they're all important. But you just brought it up, uh, trans versus intersex in terms of sport regulation and participation overlap and differences there. Well, I think that they both speak to, you know, the, the fault lines that underlie sport around assuming the two sex system. Okay. You know, they they throw the binary-based organization of sport into disarray. That's what they share in common. Okay. You know, they they reveal, like, the flaws of modern sport. But they do have different uh, experiences. Uh, They have different pressures, uh, pressures, but just slightly different pressures in how they're, they're, uh, I guess, how they're articulated. Yeah, and how they experience it. I mean, one of the things we know is that a lot of uh, athletes who failed the sex test when that was in place, uh, a lot of the women had no idea they were intersex. Um, You know, and intersex is simply a condition that, you know, some of the characteristics that are associated with sex different 
tests are mixed, mm -hmm. which is really freaking normal. Right. Like, you know, the estimate is anywhere between one and 4% of live births uh, have intersex characteristics, mm -hmm. which, you know, again, is, you know, revealing. And the thing is, sometimes you don't even know till later, but, you know, there's like normal, healthy gender variation or sex variation and trans people are also normal, healthy variation. Right. Okay, what about Title IX, impact that Title IX has had on participation for trans and intersex? Well, Title IX is really interesting. Um, you know, it's been both a blessing and a curse. There's absolutely no question that Title IX uh, increased the participation of girls and women in sport, like, unbelievably. 200 so old or something, yeah. Mm -hmm. So great. But it also reinforced, reinscribed binary sex segregation in sport, which is, you know, like rather than providing equal opportunities in a really meaningful way and, you know, like rethinking the exclusion of girls and women from sport, it simply created separate but equal. And, you know, in the U.S., there's a long history of understanding that separate is not equal. So these are difficult things to sort out. Well, Title IX, it depends on who the president of the United States was, because under Obama, uh, Obama directed schools to respect Title IX provisions with regard to transgender students, you know, and transgender student athletes. So that was, you know, pro pro certainly in terms of letting students use bathrooms and change rooms and participate according to their gender, you know, their self-determined as opposed to imposed sex category. Like that's life altering. Sure. But, you know, that, that's, that's a really huge aspect of harm reduction. You know, if you are going to have sex segregated facilities, it's a huge aspect of, of harm reduction to allow trans and non-binary people to, uh, to choose which is more comfortable for them and to have the expectation they will be treated with courtesy and respect in those spaces. But then you had the election in 2016 and the rescinding of Title IX yeah. and that had absolutely harmful sure. uh, impact. So now we have a new directive with the Biden administration to um, apply Title IX. So I think it needs to be understood as a really important day-to-day -day living harm reduction. Like if you are going to have binary sex-based facility spaces, programs, then that is absolutely crucial for harm reduction. Like it's going to keep people alive. Right, right. But- I'm deeply unsatisfied with it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Conclusion, ready? So I have this baseline question that I've been working on this whole time. I've been thinking about it probably for years. But so I remember Jay Coakley saying that sports, you know, have been created by and for men from not, I mean, from even before the modern Olympics, you know, forever, it's been that way. Um, can we make tweaks to how sport is currently constructed to provide for a more equitable or humane experience, or do we need to scrap it and rebuild it? Um, can we let people just participate regardless, just without demarcation, like the idea of the Olympics without countries and medal counts, just the top people race, the top people. Can we do something like that? Some people saying, well, let's do testosterone cutoffs. If you're with this, this range or this range, you compete regardless of what you look like. Um, and there's this quote I wanted to read to you by Patrick Shin. He says, despite the truth of the generalizations about sex-based differences, 
that putatively justify the separation of men and women in competitive sport. One might argue that legitimation of sex as a proxy for capability in any context is so potentially pernicious that sex segregation in sports should be regarded as impermissible per se. So can this anti-discrimination value that we seem to have trump the values of sport or do we got to just kind of start over or can we tweak it and make it more accessible? Million dollar question. Yeah, yeah, no, I got this. I want to say two things. I want to start by uh, building on Jay Coakley's point to say that sport, modern sport as we know it, was developed by not just men, but white upper class men in European countries. And I want to emphasize that white upper class men are still the ones who, who are making billions off sport. They are profiting from sport. So let's let's pay attention to that. Sport, as we know it, is enriching particular people wildly disproportionately. I know that a lot of people like to point to you know, LeBron James is like making billions and millions of dollars, but nobody pays attention to who owns yeah. <laughs> you know, the majority of these money-making uh, major league teams and franchises. They're white, clearly rich men. You know, let's let's critique capitalism as a foundational principle. Um, and now, <clears throat> one of the things that I've argued in my own work is that, as an interim measure, this is what we should do: we should abolish male-only sex-segregated sport across the board, entirely, okay. entirely. You know, like Major League Baseball, National Hockey League you know, the National Football League, they should have to prove that they are putting as much energy and resources into recruiting and developing girls and women as they do men. Okay. Okay. And remember, Hank Aaron said there's no reason why a woman can't play Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. Like, Jose mm-hmm. Altuve is 5'6". Right. Dave yeah. Exxon was 5'6". Give me a break. I mean, yeah. who won the first World Baseball Classics? The Japanese and the Koreans, mm-hmm. you know, like not the big Americans. So anyway, right. never mind. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, but this is what I think we should do. Abolish all male-only spaces of any kind, but with regard to sport. At the same time, because we know if we just threw everybody together, women and girls would be exposed to more misogyny and sexism. So as an interim measure, I believe that we should maintain girl and women only spaces and sporting organizations with trans inclusive boundaries. Okay, explain trans inclusive boundaries. What would those look like? like? Meaning that all you have to do is say, I identify as non-binary, I identify as trans, and therefore I am in this special space. Okay. And here, this is where, you know, a space that is like purposefully, you know, developed to, to provide confidence and opportunity at the same time as in these open, open spaces, like we're talking about absolutely transformative cultural work around anti-sexism, anti-misogyny, anti-racism, mm-hmm. you know, and at the same time, within a larger context, we commit to anti-poverty as a society. Yeah. foundationally so yeah this is kind of complicated but this yeah. is my vision sure sure <laughs> this is my vision and it's also an abolitionist vision by the way because if we commit to anti-poverty uh and anti-racism we have to have an abolitionist characteristic to our society so like it's all it's all collected but the immediate thing that i would do is abolish male only sporting spaces mm-hmm. like right away like it's illegal that's illegal the it's illegal. uh yeah, the, you know, you have a, you you can't have all male teams. Yeah, yeah. 
Because I thought about that, like this, you know, the question of how do we change sport could be, well, we have to change society and sport will, will kind of come, will come after, but then sport doesn't just reflect our values. It also creates our values. So maybe we alter society by first changing sport. You know, I don't know which happens first or they can, if they can happen simultaneously. You know, you, you gotta, I, I think you fight wherever you are. Like, and some of the fights that I'm undertaking right now are, you know, I'm on the, whatever, the equity, diversity and inclusion committee of the BC Soccer Association, and we're piloting all gender soccer for children, you know, to be more trans inclusive, but also because it's stupid to have sex segregated soccer. Like, why are six-year-olds not playing against each other? Little kids. You render invisible the gendered overlap, Mm -hmm. you know, like all the things that kids do together. Right. You know, doing a project on gender equity in children and youth baseball to try to identify the things that push girls out of baseball. Like, I'm a baseball coach. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you fight where you are. But, like, the bigger picture, yes, we need to abolish all male-only sport. We need to recognize that just like whites only spaces, male only spaces are foundationally oppressive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It Was it you, somebody I was reading recently talked about seeing, uh, seeing if you saw two teams playing basketball, all black men and all white men, you'd say, well, look at that. They're segregated by race, but you wouldn't notice that they were segregated by gender. Like it's, I forget if that was in your book, but, um, but I was like, yeah, it's just so you don't even I don't think don't it even was notice. me, but. 50 years ago, we wouldn't have noticed. Right. It would have been the norm. Sure, sure. Absolutely. And so all of the, you know, all of the ways in which, you know, white supremacy and male supremacy are encoded in our daily lives. um, I suppose that's one of the reasons that I find sociology so empowering is that it helps us, it helps us learn to see those things. That's great. Uh, That's a good spot to end. I really like that. Thank you very much, Travers. I really appreciate it. It's great to meet you. Likewise. Thanks for the interview. Okay, take care. You've been listening to an interview with Travers on our social landscape, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, please take a minute to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. I thank them for taking the time to engage in a fun and friendly chat. And this was a really exciting interview for me in part because I learned so much during the preparation for it and the conversation itself. Most of the topics I've focused on in the year and a half of this blog have been issues I've studied for a long time, either academically or more informally, but this one is relatively new to me, so I had a lot to learn. I don't know if I'll ever be content, so to speak, with my knowledge on these things, but I'm a lot closer now than I was a year ago. And I agree with Travers that this is a hot-button issue often used by politicians to rally their base and bring people out to the polls. The Florida anti-trans bill that was just signed in June will impact almost no one in the state, but it allows our governor and Republican legislature to say they are standing up to all this rampant political correctness that the right rails against. It's Willie Horton all over again, just like the heavy abortion focus right before elections. It's also a timely discussion since the Summer Olympics in Japan are just about to begin, And we are already hearing concerns about trans athletes. I'd like to provide an example to reinforce Professor Travers' vision. Laurel Hubbard is on the New Zealand women's weightlifting team after formerly being on a men's team and then transitioning. If it were up to Travers, there would be an open division instead of a men's division, 
and a women's division with trans-inclusive boundaries. Laurel Hubbard would then compete in whichever division she feels most comfortable. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, and I'll remind you that one of the purposes of this blog is to engage in public sociology. For me, the goal is to engage academic and non-academic audiences in critical discussions of social issues that are typically confined to the academic world. But it doesn't work if I'm the only one talking. So please feel free to sign up for the blog and become a member, which simply entails creating a username and password. Then you can comment after each post. At the very least, please feel free to email me your comments, and I'll be sure to respond. I'll post a link to Travers' work on my page, and I'll list the music as well. And finally, if you're feeling so inclined, you can push that yellow donate button on the homepage. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at jr at our Thanks for listening. I'll look at you.